Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoSiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the EcoSiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org donate. For today's episode, Philip Clayton speaks with Dr. Kelly Archie, who is an environmental social scientist and senior research specialist at Ecosiv. Kelly's research interests focus mainly on climate change adaptation, specifically on reconciling the supply and demand of climate information, how attitudes and beliefs about climate change affect adaptation decisions, household-level adaptation decisions in vulnerable areas, and overcoming barriers to adaptation planning and hurdles to implementation. Philip talks with Kelly about her work on climate change adaptation, how it relates to the concept of ecological civilization, the need to be realistic but not alarmist about climate change, how she responds to Jim Bendel's notion of deep adaptation, and what gives her hope. And now, here's Philip and Kelly. I'm Philip Clayton. I'm the president of the Institute for Ecological Civilization. And it's my special pleasure to have on the podcast this morning, Dr. Kelly Archie, who is a senior research specialist at the Institute. Dr. Archie is trained as an environmental social scientist. She's been the last 12 years working as an academic in New Zealand and in the United States, studying in particular climate change adaptation. She teaches classes at the graduate level in climate change, geography, environmental science, environmental studies, and so forth. Kelly earned her PhD and MS in environmental studies from the University of Colorado at Boulder, and she also holds a BA in economics from Colorado State. She's a native of the Colorado Rocky Mountains, and that's led to her particular research interest in alpine and mountainous regions. So she's worked around uh, the world in the United Nations, in the United States, the Indian Himalayas. Vanuatu, a small chain of islands in the South Pacific, and New Zealand as well. I should add on a more personal dimension that uh, Kelly and her family live on the side of a ski run in Grand County, Colorado, one of the most beautiful places in the United States. Uh, they have three young daughters and one very old dog who doesn't quite keep up with all of them on their bikes and paths. Uh, so she spends a lot of her time skiing, biking, hiking, and rock climbing. In fact, the last thing, Kelly, that you sent before this um, podcast began was a picture of your three-year-old harnessed to a line and climbing up what looked like a vertical rock face. I don't think I've ever seen a three-year-old do that before. Yeah, our kids are pretty hardcore. <laughs> so they don't get much of a choice. People ask us a lot of time um, how we get them to keep going and go out and um, spend so much time hiking and doing these things. And we, our answer is a resounding, we don't give them a choice. So <laughs> if your kids don't think that there's a choice involved, then they're really willing to go along, it turns out. So. It's one thing to get your kid on the, on the trail, but to have this, and she looked totally happy. She's looking down at the camera and beaming and doing something that I would probably find um, already pushing the boundaries. So uh, you, you walk your talk, and I think that's, that's an amazing part of um, knowing you as a professional. Oh, um, thanks. thanks for having me on. Yeah. So let me just start this way. If you had just two minutes to say what led you to do your PhD in environmental studies, what would you say? 
Oh, so before I went back to graduate school, my husband and I, before kids, uh, were living in California on the Central Coast, and I worked um, in marketing and event planning at a spice company, of <laughs> all things. Um, and it wasn't, wasn't a terrible job by any means, um, but I didn't feel like I was involved in the things that I really cared about. I spent my time trying to sell spices. <laughs> well, I wasn't selling them, but marketing and, and I mean, events about, you know, food products, which is um, not the worst thing you could do, but I wanted to be more connected to the things that really mattered to me. I grew up uh, largely outside as a kid in the, in the mountains and, um, I find sitting in an office really difficult <laughs> anyway. So I, I wanted to go back and do uh, to a field that I felt like even if I did have to be inside working, that at least it was connected to the environment and the world that I cared about so much. You specialize in climate change adaptation. One of the things that we most want to stress in this podcast is um, the recent discussion about adaptation deep adaptation has become an incredibly popular idea among environmentalists and some activists as well. In fact, our most popular episode on the podcast so far concerns the topic of deep adaptation. Um, so what I would love to do is to ask in the beginning just the wide open question, what is this term climate change adaptation? What does it mean? So adaptation was, um, has been talked about since, I mean, for years, just not in the mainstream for a long time. In fact, it was not, we were not supposed to talk about it at the beginning, I mean, a couple decades ago, because it was seen as if we focused on adaptation that we were giving up on mitigation. So for a long time, it was kind of just something that we, you know, scientists and people worked on kind of behind the scenes, but we certainly, the public didn't talk about it. So adaptation is purely the um, the definition is basically exploiting the benefits or trying to allay the costs, if you will, of what happens, what changes in our environment. So basically, what can you do? <laughs> and the interesting part over the years, I didn't become a climate change uh, researcher or science, climate change scientist, if you will, because of the and uh, the politics behind it. In fact, I that was one of the reasons I didn't want to do it in the first place. So adaptation was a safer space for a long time in the sense that um, I could uh, you know avoid some of the arguments with people by saying, hey, okay, you we you may not agree where you know like what, what's happening or why it's happening. Um, but the fact is that things are happening. So it's prudent to, to plan for the future and do something about it. And so it was a good way to get started talking to people, I would say. Um, and adaptation has become now a necessity. So we've progressed so far down the road that we have sea levels rising, all, all the things people, especially listening prior to this podcast, already know that you know we have bigger storms, we have sea levels rising, we have droughts extending in places, we have changing precipitation patterns, all kinds of things that are already happening as a result of our own impact on the climate. And we need to not just be aware of them and potentially, hopefully, with, through mitigation, stop emitting so many greenhouse gases and, and bring the problem back in, into a realm that we can manage. But, but we should do something about it probably <laughs> for our human systems right now. We should start planning for the future. So it's, on one hand, super practical and really obvious, kind of like, well, things are happening. We should probably do something. But the, the question of deep adaptation um, really kind of extended a line that was originally called transformational adaptation, which was set in contrast to incremental adaptation. So most of the things that you've seen done in the past 20, 30 years around the planet that we call adaptation are just incremental things, things doing a little bit more than what was already done in order to prevent um, problems from getting worse or to make communities 
less vulnerable in the future to storms or to flooding or to droughts and things like that. But they weren't really changing the systems. And so in, I don't know, maybe early 2000s, people started talking about transformational adaptation, which was actually changing the systems entirely, uh, or maybe not as entirely as deep adaptation talks about, but, but making much bigger changes as far as scale or location or newness, you know, um, novelty in adaptation. So really looking at the system and being like, okay, so let's look longer term and not just incrementally make changes. The problem was then is that we weren't seeing as many, um, as many impacts as we are now. I mean, so the impacts of climate change are getting daily more obvious. And at the time, making decisions based on transformational adaptation was really difficult because if you made the wrong decision, maladaptation was a really big risk, right? So you're like, okay, let's build this big infrastructure project and take funds away from a project that we know, you know, a different type of project, that social project that needs to be done and put them here to plan for the future. And what if that wasn't right? Like, what if, what if that flooding never happened anyways and you diverted a lot of funds away from something else? So transformational adaptation, I would say, it didn't catch on really in the vernacular of every of everyday thinking because we didn't we like I said those those big things hadn't been happening and so deep adaptation just takes that further and says okay we don't we need not only not just incremental but past transformational and say that our whole societies need to be we need to rethink everything basically that we do in order to prevent or in the face of depending on who you're talking to complete collapse. Mm -hmm. um, that tension you, you hinted at a little bit earlier. If, if you take the, the more and more radical positions about what's required in adaptation, it's not just incremental, it's going to be systemic, it's going to be transformational, and then it's going to be radical or deep. In a sense, you're telling folks, look, your odds of making it without changing the whole system are smaller and smaller, lower and lower odds, which might then cause people not to do anything at all because, well, the, the boat's going to sink anyway. Is there, in your work with people and their attitudes, is there a kind of balance? Emphasize radical adaptation, decrease motivation to change. Emphasize motivation to change, decrease the, the sense that the systems themselves have to be replaced. Yeah, I think the whole problem, one of the big issues with climate change, I mean, well, this is well documented and well written about, is that alarmism is rampant, probably because it needs to be, but that people don't respond well to it. Like we feel like if this problem is so big, there's nothing I can do about it, whether that's on the individual scale or on the, you know, the local scale at a town level or a national scale, if it just looks hopeless, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but um, then, then what's the point kind of. And so in, I think you don't, if you, when you're a researcher though, and you're working directly with people either through interviews, which I've done a lot of, or surveys, but those types of things, how you approach it is really, it's your approach in that sense. Like you're saying, you have to balance it, but there's also a sense of realism. When, when problems are obvious, then, then tackling them doesn't seem so daunting. I mean, it can, the solutions can seem daunting, they can seem expensive or hard, but at least it seems like something you can talk about. So I think the risk comes in the alarmism when everything seems kind of not, not defined. You know, so when there's just this like general sense of foreboding that the world is falling apart and we're not exactly, you know, so what, why, what, what, there's something I can do about it, so I'll just continue on. So I think that the, it's really important, like you said, that the message get out that things are dire, but if it's, if it's promoted too dire, if it sounds too alarmist and too terrible, then it is really difficult for people to respond in any practical way. Um, but I think that the other thing that gives that makes me less prone to that is that even people that don't believe in climate change, 
thankfully, I think that number is dwindling. Um, but, but obviously, there's some, some important people that are still going to fall on that side. But when I worked with public lands managers in, in the U.S., for example, so National Park Service, National Forest Service, um, BLM, and Fish and Wildlife, and this was early well, not super early 2000s, but around, say, 2009. Um, but there was still some big debate. And even with a lot of the managers I talked to, there were some major, what you would call now deniers, though at the time it wasn't quite as um, as dire as that, I would say. It was Obama era, and we had just gotten rid of the, you know, like, so there were these new policies coming in. And there was, at the time, um, a mandate, an executive order to go forth and adapt, basically, for public land. Like, they were supposed to take into account anthropogenically caused climate change, and do something about it. Um, and so in that sense, there was this like message, this clear message that things are wrong, like do something. And we, even the managers I spoke to that were not convinced of this, that it was a good idea, but they still saw problems. And when they were defined to them, say, okay, well, you don't have to believe in the cause, I guess. <laughs> but if we look at the like implications that you're already seeing on your lands, they were more than willing to say, yeah, I see these changes and we should do something about them. So I, I think there's a way around both like that kind of problem by being more practical about it and more specific. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, is, so there, you think there is a, a sweet spot? I mean, is that what we as, as activists or in a nonprofit are looking for where you get the seriousness of the threat without being alarmist that motivates maximal response in a realistic way, but says under the level will people get paralysis? That's what I hear you saying. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think that comes with understanding your audience really well. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what good nonprofits or activists, I mean, obviously I'm still pretty new to this kind of arena since I've been an academic, but that, that you know, understanding your audience and what is going to speak to them, not compromising your message, but just sharing more like important parts of it that are actually really applicable to who you're trying to speak to. Because I'm a really practical person, both as an academic and as a, you know, personal in that sense. But my goal is to have things improve, like is to do better as a society and as an individual. And we don't always have to share the same values or even goals or priorities, as long as we share enough to know that we want to get to someplace to do like better than we're doing right now. And so I think that's how like finding the sweet spot is a lot about understanding where you can find common ground with even in, in groups that you don't, it doesn't appear that you share a lot. So how would you handle a criticism um, like the following? I'm thinking of Bindel, uh, who uh, says that collapse is now inevitable. We really need to give up hope for large-scale civilizational change. So it's sort of deep adaptation. So he's, he thinks that we're facing an imminent collapse. Uh, and he says, well, damn the psychological consequences. This is what the evidence says, and we need to be honest about it. That's very different from your approach. How do you respond to it? Well, I just don't think it's productive. It's not that I necessarily, I mean, he, I hope he's wrong, I, <laughs> but, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can't, I don't think any of us can answer whether, but I don't think the evidence shows that we are actually hopeless. Like I, I don't think that anything in human history, much less, I mean, even if you include ecological, I, I agree that right now we are doing our damnedest to make sure we collapse, if that makes sense. But I don't think that the message necessarily accomplishes that much because again, if it paralyzes you and says, well, if we're already doomed anyways, then what's the point? Then, then how can you, like turning that productive is really difficult. And because then you say, well, like so clearly, if it's, if it's already a foregone conclusion, then by all means, continuing, continue what you're doing and enjoy yourself for now. 
you know, have fun at the party because if it's going to end anyways, then what's the point in struggling to get to an end, you know, that's, that's already a conclusion. So I just, I don't know that that motivates. <laughs> and I think what we need now is action and motivation. And I don't think you get there by saying, even if you try, you're going to fail, <laughs> you know? So, and I think humans, we had a discussion about this with my family. I have little girls, like you said, and we were watching a, we watch a lot of documentaries because they have two scientist parents, poor children. Um, and one of which we were watching just recently was about first contact with uh, peoples that still live in the Amazon. And people are very, humans are resilient. Um, and we, I won't discuss that topic. On, it's a totally different topic other than the fact that um, we might not like what happens to us. And even if there is a form, I also think that his argument depends on your definition of collapse. And perhaps my definition of collapse and his definition of collapse are not the same. And my, what I think happens after a collapse in his and whether it's good or bad may not be the same. And so we may have to change what we do and our lives might look very different and we might be pissed about it. <laughs> like we might not like it at first, but it turns out that most of the time, whether it's on a, like a personal scale, like if you're in a family and somebody loses a job and you have to rethink everything and, and get a new house or get it move or those kinds of things. And you might not be very happy about it. It might be really difficult at first, but t usually people get through and they change what they're doing and they refine new priorities and they find new options. And so um, I think that his statement really depends on your definition of collapse and your feelings about what happens after that and what, what is negative and what is positive are really, you know, dependent. So yeah. does that answer your question? That's a powerful point. And, and um, that seems extremely important uh, because people will have a very specific definition and then claim certain outcomes from the definition. And you were saying that we, that actually a lot of attention needs to go into what constitutes um, collapse. However, how would you respond if Mendelton says, all right, um, I appreciate your sensitivity to people's psychological attitudes, but damn it, you have to say the truth. Here's what the science is saying. Here's what the probabilities look like. And it's just time to roll up our sleeves and say, folks, this is how it is. I don't know exactly what the social consequences are, but I know what the planet and its resources are going to look like. It's ecosystems. It's biodiversity. That seems like, I don't know, when that one ought to worry about that criticism. Do we owe it to people, those of us who know the data, to say it outright? Well, I, but I think the problem is you're assuming that they don't already know, I mean, that they haven't heard that. I don't know if they know that, but the, the point is, is that I am focused, like I said, I think the most important thing is action, and I don't know that that message gets you more action than it does now. In fact, it could get you less. And so it depends on your, great, they hear, the problem is, is that people hear these messages all the time about the climate, about our planet, about their children, about gun control, about politics, about all kinds of things. We hear dire messages and we're desensitized to it. There's plenty of literature about our desensitization. So if you, you can keep saying, I'm sure, share it, great, but doesn't mean you're going to get any more action because of it. So what we need to figure out is what kind of message actually motivates people by using the truth and saying, this is a dire situation, but... Here are some things you can do. And so I, I just don't think that a pure dire message, because he's in your quote you said there, that he says to be damned what their like 
psychological needs or I don't know what will happen socially and he doesn't put forth if you don't give any solutions then I just don't know that you're actually motivating action which is what we need we need action we don't need emotion we don't need everyone to be worried being worried doesn't accomplish anything we need people to be motivated to want to do something and so we need to figure out the message that shares the direness but also you can say brings hope but or you can say brings options and actions and so I think that's what's missing is that we share dire things but without a lot of um, strategies going forward and then it becomes and everybody goes well okay sounds pretty awful but you didn't tell me what I should do about it so okay fantastic now that's that's actually really helpful um, and it, it does cast a, a clear uh, spotlight on the very heart of your work I'd like to turn to your research work you've had the chance to have conversations around the world that most of us could only dream about not only in parts of the United States where many people aren't holding conversations with folks, but in New Zealand during a number of years residency, as you, as we mentioned earlier, the Indian Himalayas, uh, Vanuatu in the South Pacific and so forth. And um, can you talk about one, let's say one in the United States and one outside the United States, an actual research project, who you talk to and the, the sort of core points of what you learned through that research in environmental studies. So I think some of my work, because a lot of what I've done um, in this area, at least in the, the work of mine that's uh, related to most directly to climate change adaptation and respond, basically just to responding to climate change, because I talk about mitigation too, but is working with different groups of people. So uh, like I've already mentioned, land managers, but also elected officials and community leaders, and then just regular old citizens too. So people just that live in very poor parts of the Himalaya. And most people that live in Vanuatu live in, um, you know, very economically, uh, you know, potentially disadvantaged situations as well. But two of the main things that came out of research in general across the board um, are really applicable, I think, to our conversation we're having right now <laughs> and to that of the work of ECOCIV in general. And the first um, theme is that we, I talk a lot about, a lot about information demand um, and climate change because for, for years we've said, oh, well, we could do more if we just had the right information or more certainty or the information was at a good, the right scale or it was um, accessible. Like I just can't get to the information, those types of things. So across the board, when I asked the people, all those different groups you just mentioned about whether they have the information they need or whether they need more, people will 100% <laughs> tell you, absolutely, I need more information. The more information you can give me, the better, at the best scale, and all those things I just said. But when I push them further and ask them whether the lack of that information actually prevents them from making decisions, they, across the board, say no, that they are perfectly capable of making decisions all the time without perfect information and with, with plenty of uncertainty involved. And we know this just as humans. So every day we wake up and we make decisions about what we're going to do with our day or our life or our week. And we don't have perfect information and we are, there's plenty of uncertainty involved. We, we, if we don't know what the weather is going to be, we pack accordingly. Um, and there's a million other examples you could use there. So what that means is that it's not just about scientists producing the best information or giving more information to people. Um, it's that information does not a lack of information, lack of uncertainty doesn't prevent us from planning for climate change or from making big changes in society. But what does prevent it is when that uncertainty and that lack of information butts up against other priorities. So if I'm trying to make a decision with limited resources, which everyone has limited resources for the most part, and especially communities and organizations or institutions have limited resources and they have to decide where to put those resources. If one of my decisions um, or one of the places I could put it would be planning for the future for climate change or for in just 
change for the environment in general or civilizational change, but I'm uncertain about what the actual impacts are going to be. And I don't have great information about what's going to happen in my area. And I know that I have other problems that need to be addressed. Then those resources are going to be put toward the things that you are certain of. So that leaves us in a state of saying, okay, well, you could make decisions, but we now have what really is limiting us is a lack of resources, which is always the problem, right? We never have enough money to do everything we want to do. But the way that this can be overcome, and this is my second point, and that we've seen this again across the board from or all these different people um, with decision makers in the United States and in New Zealand and in these other places that if you can find projects, projects may not be the best word, but strategies or policies or projects that have co-benefits. And that's a fancy term for um, that provides more than one thing that solves more than one problem or gives benefits in addition to whatever the, what you were trying to solve in the first place, that those projects are not only more likely to succeed, but they're going to be much more effective. And so the, a good example of this is, and that, well, I should say before I move on to the examples, but this works for adaptation and for mitigation. So this means for if you can find a project that um, is technically a mitigation project, you know, it's something that's cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions, but also provides other great things along the way, be it economic benefits, um, jobs, or other environmental, local environmental benefits, then it's much more likely to be not only approved and funded, but to be more effective in the future at all of those things and to be replicated and uh, grown, if you will. So some of my favorite examples of these are urban greening. So we have areas that are obviously experiencing, um, you know, higher temperatures and drought, especially desert cities. And one of the strategies, which my favorite types of adaptation strategies are nature-based. <laughs> so things that don't just use concrete, but that actually benefit our other living environment. Um, but by putting in green spaces, you not only bring down ambient temperatures, but you provide aesthetic values for, for the residents. They like to look at them. They're much prettier. Um, they also provide habitat for local pollinators and birds and maybe not exotic wildlife necessarily wherever you are, but nevertheless, um, places for other species to thrive. Um, and they provide water filtration. So if you have root systems that are draining your water instead of them just going into a storm uh, drain like on, off of concrete and taking all those chemicals in there so you have cleaner water and you have fresher air. So you have all these things and oftentimes at a fraction of the cost of, of doing other things like um, increasing access to air conditioning, which then causes more pollution. And so these are really win-win solutions um, with co-benefits across the board. And it's really easy to get groups of people, whether they're policymakers or residents behind them, and they're applicable globally and it makes people feel involved as well. So I'd say those are my two big takeaways from most of my research I've done. Globally. That's fascinating. Um, so it would be helpful for us to hear that in a concrete setting. So can you paint a picture for us or tell us a story? And let's go to uh, one of the areas where you've done research that we would be least familiar with. So the Indian Himalayas, um, for example, or Vanuatu. So one of the, a really concrete example, in Vanuatu, we put together an adaptation plan. So I worked with a team um, originally uh, kind of put together by, well, we were approached by SPREP, which is a, an organization that works in that part of the world. And then um, myself and a number of others from um, mostly Victoria University, um, where I work in New Zealand, but also some others from around the globe. Um, but an, it was a nature-based adaptation plan um, because we, it was important, SPREP's mission and ours, to not just go in and say, okay, let's build you a seawall. You have sea level rise. Let's let's just put a bunch of concrete out in your bay. So our solutions were all nature-based, meaning they were through restoration um, and natural and local um, 
indigenous knowledge in Pavia. So we worked really closely with the actual population there, the people, and had workshops and um, lots of meetings and lots of input from them about the things that they value and what they need um, just to not just survive, but to thrive. And they're not, they weren't thriving at the time. It was really in Port Vila, which is the only city in Vanuatu. Um, and most of the population lives there. So um, we had a lot of, the, the, uh, the project is actually still taking place right now and they're impl implementing our plans, um, some faster than others. But one of the good examples, I was really adamant that some of the projects um, be very uh, apparent, like obviously apparent to both the residents, but also to tourists because tourism is obviously a big um, part of their economy. And the residents, we, we were restoring a watershed, for example, which is great. And we had local um, assistance doing it. So some of the people would have known we were doing it because they would be helping. And it will clean their water, um, both their local drinking water, but it will also and restore the actual ecosystem. And it will also help with their, um, the marine ecosystem where it empties out, but still not as, you know, Technically, for those that actually live in the city or the urban part, um, as visible. So we were planting trees. So not, not necessarily for the same reasons I just said in, say, a desert city. But the trees that we planted all along the main corridors in the city are fruit trees and local, you know, South Pacific tropical fruit trees. It's because they have food shortages there and very unhealthy populations that eat a lot of very processed imported food. So by helping them to plant local gardens, both in the communities, but also planting trees throughout the city that are edible or produce edible, like good healthy food it provides a product you know for children and people that live there to be able to pick and it's very visible um so that people can the tourists understand that this is something that's important um we have ways of communicating that to them with our brochure you know what the trees are about why they're there why are there so many fruit trees in our city now it's for obviously consumption it's also for habitat and um for healthy communities in addition to all the other things is that a good does that make sense of the example mm -hmm. that's a great example in those of us who've worked in activism, sometimes find it discouraging that when you get into a particular community, you have people agreeing on the broader framework, need for adaptation, um, but then it seems like little conflicts often arise where things grind to a stop. And I'm sure in your work in these different communities, um, you found this discouraging levels of conflict that threatened to derail an entire project. Can you tell a story of a time when conflict arose and you and your team were able to find, how were you able to help folks to keep moving forward? Oh, you, you said this word co-benefits, but I'm trying to make this idea of co-benefits more concrete. Yeah, um, we, I have been actually really lucky with, because of the funding that of the way a lot of things that I've done have been funded, we don't run up to as many, like I said, a lot of the, the problems I think come when it's a lack of resources. So if the resources are coming from, you know, an outside source and you're using them in a community to make positive changes, I think the biggest things we've come up against are just a lack of shared vision for it. And, and the watershed is a pretty good example of that. So we spent a lot of our money in Vanuatu, you know, like a big part of our like focus was restoring this watershed because it was very um, damaged and it not only hurt the local ecosystem, but also the marine ecosystem, which was also very, very damaged off the coast there. And then that was preventing tourism, but people wanted us instead to build them houses. <laughs> so they were like, but we live in these, especially these unofficial, um, uh, 
shanty towns basically. And so there's unincorporated, you know, so we have these, these GIS maps where we're like, well, here's the urban center here are so where, you know, the people officially live. And then there's all these other people that unofficially from like live over here in tents and in like, you know, piece together things where it's not even running water. And so bringing money into the community that we know that in the long term, the watershed needs to be restored is, is actually of, of the utmost importance because their own local health, not to mention the health of their both terrestrial and marine ecosystems is 100% dependent on this, like, or maybe not 100%, but very, very dependent on this one watershed. So we know that a big amount of our effort and money needs to be spent there, but they're like, but we really just would like for you to build us some houses. <laughs> so if you could instead take that money and build us proper houses, then we'd be a lot happier with us. So we had to split the different, you know, in the sense that we still focus on that watershed, but we found ways to improve that other part of the community too. And put in, um, in our plans, we included local gardens so that they could, you know, in that area and a sustainable development plan for that community. So we couldn't build all the houses for them, but we could make plans for how to build more resilient, both for storms and for like different things going forward, but a more sustainable community. And that's being done as well. And it wouldn't be done with the exact same pot of money, but we did have to figure out how to get buy-in from the locals that were like, great, good for you and your trees, but like, seriously, we need houses. So <laughs> it, we managed to do it, but it was, you're right. It's tricky because had we not figured out how to work that into the plan. And like I said, my, my tree idea of saying, this needs to be visible. They need to see this and benefit really quickly and understand then it would have been, we would have just looked like another outside organization coming in and telling them, we'll fix your environment for you, but we're not going to actually directly benefit you. Yeah, that's good. That, that concrete examples are really helpful. So Kelly, it's only been recently in your career that you started to work with and use the term ecological civilization. And it'd be really helpful, I think, for us to understand how, how do you tell the narrative from the work on adaptation you've been describing, the, the global research, the teaching and publishing that you've done, to beginning to work with a new concept? Is it similar? Is it, is it, um, is it really just deep adaptation in different words? Um, just to step back for a minute and hear your evaluation of the term and some of how it, what its valence is, what its role is in the conversation would be really helpful to us. So I think I'll, I can address that by, so I left full-time ac academia because I'm still teaching and um, involved in research, but I'm not full-time academia anymore. And to work with Ecosiv um, because I wanted a more tangible, so I just gave you a really good like concrete, tangible example of my work, but that, that isn't usually the case to be quite honest. So a lot of the time, a lot of my work, you know, is with surveys and, and populations at a distance where we come up with findings and we distribute them and we communicate them to them, you know, maybe in events and in uh, workshops, but, but there's not a ton of really obvious, tangible difference that is made. And I really felt like that was lacking in my life and something that was really important to me to have more of an impact, a direct impact on things in the world. I do, I mean, I said earlier that I don't think that um, messages of catastrophe are necessarily the most productive, but I do have a semblance of how that is actually, I mean, that, that it is, we're in a dire situation here. And that me writing academic articles in journals is not gonna solve the problem. And so I really wanted to be involved in some work that I felt was going to make real time differences and um, actual like tangible on the ground progress toward things that I thought were important. So coming to Ecosiv was in that sense uh, seamless that I 
because I feel like that's what we're trying to do, that we're actually trying to uh, you know, make a positive difference toward, and not just toward, you know, small incremental goals, but in this kind of long-term transformational type, you know, systemic change that we're trying to promote and, and design, if you will. Um, so I think my, the things that I've learned, I mean, you really, growing an ecological civilization, if you can use that verb, <laughs> growing, um, is really akin to a climate change adaptation. I mean, a lot of what I just talked about, I could have replaced every all the time I said adaptation with just ecological civilization. And it probably worked, would have worked just fine because we may be talking about, I think one of the things that is attractive to me from my perspective and my background about ecological civilization as opposed to adaptation is that it takes an even bigger look. So obviously I have to whittle down the problems in my research and in my work and adaptation to say, well, but these are what we're dealing with because of climate change and not necessarily those things over there, even though I think they're just as important. And so with ecological civilization, I get to look at the whole picture and I get to say, okay, well, those things are important and responding to what happens with our climate and in our environment is really important, but so are all the other social problems. And so are these other ancillary environmental problems that may have nothing to do with climate change, even though they may be, you know, somewhat contributing or related, but they're not exactly, you know, they would have been happening regardless. And so I get to look at that whole picture and not just try to focus in on one part of it, but try to actually discuss and hopefully contribute to solving a bigger problem than just, you know, that one piece. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think what would be helpful for us is to hear how you gloss, define, interpret this, these two words put together, ecological civilization, coming from the background of PhD level training and research in climate change adaptation. In other words, speak ecological civilization with a climate change adaptation accent. Okay, I'll give that a go. And just tell us with that heavy accent um, the way that you would parse those, that phrase. So to me, ecological civilization is more than just addressing the ways that we live and how we respond to the systems we already have. That it's a change in values away from the assumptions that we've had in the past of what matters and who matters and what parts of our system matter. And, and it's away from the division between, I still had to tell you a few minutes ago, for example, oh, I like nature-based like, but I, I prefer nature-based solutions to climate change adaptation problems as opposed to built ones. And in my mind, in a, when we address an ecological civilization, I wouldn't have to necessarily make that distinction, but because we would be talking about a system that's, so, that's integrated and it values not just humans and not just our economic goals of becoming richer and more prosperous, but also the flourishing of other species, plants and animals that um, may not have obvious direct benefits to us. So I wouldn't have to make the differentiation between like a nature-based solution and a man-made, an Army Corps of Engineers solution because our, the, the systemic differences and the values would be such that those things wouldn't, wouldn't be in conflict anymore. Um, so, I'd say that an ecological civilization to me requires us to rethink our assumptions and values in a way that we haven't done in the past, that we have to just actually say, okay, so these are solutions, um, but they don't, we, what, what we consider success is different on a completely different level. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. People often ask me, so why does merely moving the time horizon out from the problems that 
an island nation faces in a five-year frame or um, farming in Colorado faces in a 10-year frame, why does moving it to 20, 30, 40, 80 years bring the values? Why does it reinforce the values, for example, of natural rather than built solutions? I, one senses that it does, but the skeptic might say, well, you're just taking the clock and moving a little further. Why does that help you get values? Why does it make certain things clear that wouldn't otherwise be clear? So for me, the reason that the time frame matters is because we as humans might be able to techno technology our way around things for the future. If you only value us, if you only say, oh, I only care that I want to have at least as much economic and uh, however kind of value you want to put on it for our future generations in, in 30 years as I do now, then you could probably figure out a way to technology your way around it. But that doesn't account for all the other species that you're going to lose along the way because they don't have that much time and the amount of damage you're going to do in the meantime. So the phrase I like to use is repaying our debts to the future, which kind of doesn't make sense on one hand, but if it <laughs> metaphorically does if you think of it. But we've already damaged, you know, like we've, we've borrowed from future generations or stolen from them, however you'd like to see it, their capacity to thrive in the manner that we want to. So we, we, we're taking away their opportunities to experience certain species and certain uh, nature or like aspects of nature. Um, and we're, we're quite literally taking that away from the bite. So we need to repay that to them. We need to ensure that the future generations have the same, at least the same access to those things. And I'm not just talking about money, I think. So that's why I keep coming, like saying for you or what you just said is values is that you, it, by looking at a longer time frame, you have to look at values differently than you do now. Um, and you have to value other aspects beyond that, what we do right now and change that orientation, I'd say. Yeah, your answer, that's a very clear answer. It also um, gives a rich interpretation of what that first word, ecological, means, because it really is an ecosystems-based response. It, you've emphasized the importance of biodiversity. You've emphasized the importance of our interdependence with other species. What about the second word in the phrase, civilization? You indicate your strong preference for natural solutions over built solutions. The word civilization has sometimes in people's minds implied buildings, cities, governments, in short, built solutions. Clearly, you're using it in a different way because you're talking about some fundamental set of values or even worldview or something. The really interesting part about this is that I'm studying early civilizations with my seven-year-old right now. And the definition, I know this from reading the book with her, what makes a civilization is an excess of food. And then the opportunity for is a, is a division of labor. That's like the most basic definition of a civilization. Because you can't, it's something that moves beyond the, like a, a, a basic primitive way of life that requires a constant focus on food, you know, and hunting and gathering and survival. So if we consider what we, what, like a very basic definition of civilization means is that we have enough to survive, like to more than enough to survive, that we can now thrive. And it allows us to divide our time and our power, manpower between just those survival activities and specialize in things that matter, other things that matter, like art and like, you know, so yeah, so part of civilization could be building buildings and could be having, you know, structures like schools and governments and things, of course, but at its, at its, at its core, what it means is that we have moved past like a state of just survival 
And therefore, it leaves it open to completely interpretation. It doesn't mean that our future civilizations have to look like space stations. It also doesn't mean that we have to live in tree houses. <laughs> so I think that it, it leaves a local opportunity for people to find shared values and interpret what it means to be civilized in a matter that, that actually meets those values, which may not be the ones that we have grown up with in our society. And it means that we can actually reimagine them without fear of giving up something because the values don't have to be the same. So when I hear you describe it that way, it sounds, tell me if this is right. It sounds like that first word ecological, which um, you've just described as people living locally in a relationship with an environment and with, you just said, some core values or shared set of values. And it's as if one takes that local experience, say that you know, as an outdoors person and family um, living in, in the Colorado Rockies, um, and then from that core set of values and lifestyle, that becomes the arrow, the defining force to say, this is what civilized means sustainable, whole person, values-based form of being civilized, which I suppose it just means being human. I think so. And I think a big message is, is that I think we don't have to collectively share all our same values. We should collectively, hopefully, value our environment in the sense that we should, people need to start understanding more how much we depend on it. And we've, we've tried to do this, you know, through academic form, a lot of, you know, through valuing ecosystem services and putting monetary numbers in, which has been to some degree very successful. And then, of course, there's a million arguments against it because, you know, so, but I, so as long as we value, as long as there's at least some base, like, uh, where we go to to say that, of course, we do value not just ourselves, not just humans, and that our environment provides us with the capacity to live in general, that we don't, every civilization doesn't have to look the same, everybody doesn't have to have the same values, um, and that they can be different and on a local level, I mean, that's the idea of bioregionalism, too, I think. At, at the core is that there are different ways to, to live in harmony um, with both your other humans and with nature and it and what you do should be at least tied to if not completely based on what your um, the, the what it looks like outside <laughs> the weekend, you know so um, yeah I think we just need to expand our view of what a civilization means and what and and be more open to understanding different values. we don't all have to think that the values are exactly the same but we do need to share at least the core value of understanding how interconnected we are. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I always like to end the interview by asking the specialist to talk about the theme of hope. It's interesting that that has played an undercurrent in this entire discussion. Um, and the question is actually a very simple question to you. What gives you hope? I've listened to enough of the podcast to know that it was coming and I could give you a laundry list of small things, even big things that give me hope from projects like, you know, new urban agriculture projects to, you know, activism and people changing their views and those things. But really, I think my answer when I thought about this is the only answer I can really give you is I don't think we have the luxury to not have hope because Hope, without hope, I mean, the, what is the definition of no hope is despair, and who has ever been productive under despair? And so I've said this a number of times, but I don't think that we are in the position of, if you give up your hope, then, then you're not going to be productive at all, and that's what we need. We need action, we need motivation, and we need energy. And none of that comes if you have decided that there's not a lot of hope. So out of purely practical terms, we don't get to not have hope. 
If we want to have a planet for our kids and our grandkids to enjoy, and hopefully one that is healthy and diverse and those two things would be good enough probably as it is healthy and diverse, we have to have enough hope in order to continue motivating ourselves to action. I guess that's about it. <laughs> how does it affect you to be a mom of these three daughters uh, and to give that answer? And, and almost four because I'm actually <laughs> oh. along the way. I'm sorry. So, um, I, that's how I think my daughters would probably have told you that exact that I would have that's exactly what I would have said. <laughs> They'd be like, "Well, there is no other way around it." That I think practically as a mom, that's exactly where I come from. To say, "I want you to live in a healthy planet. I want you to thrive. I want you to be able to have your own kids and be happy about leaving them on this planet for the number of years that they get to enjoy it." And the only way to do that is to consciously make a decision to be hopeful. And a decision to say that I'm going to be positive about this, even when it looks negative, because we don't have enough. Like, otherwise, we're going to be unproductive and we're never going to get there. And so I, I, I think we will only get there by making decisions that are going to at times seem difficult and that will require you to have a lot of hope because it's going to be tricky. Um, but we have to be willing to change and willing to accept some like situations that we have and we have to be malleable and have a lot of, of hope is the only way you get there because you're just simply going to not be and have enough action if you don't. Kelly, that's a beautiful answer. My guest today has been Dr. Kelly Archie. We have seen her development of her career, her global research. We've taken a deep dive into deep adaptation. And um, Kelly, you've told the story of the transition to the framework of ecological civilization in a beautiful way. I actually had never seen the connection so clearly until now. And finished with uh, what was not just a simple word about hope, but a sort of entire lifestyle or lifestyle decision based, uh, based around hope. And um, I think that's a, those are powerful words to conclude with. Thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Philip. It was really fun. <laughs>